0: This podcast is brought to you by yorktrito.com and comes with a warning. Never seek praise from your political hero. It's bound to backfire badly. Look what my hero had to say about me.
1: I mean, you as an ideas person, someone new in public life, not besmirched by the rest thing. What a joke. And let me not hear from the press gallery ever again about this as a non-political person. I mean, frankly, frankly, well... We'll, f- well, faint if we hear that again. That, now, let me tell you, Mr. Speaker, unless he's in with a question in his hand written by someone on his staff, and with a speaker, he's useless, useless, absolutely. In no, fact, Mr. Mr. Speaker, it's an insult to one's professional skills to have to be in such a debate. To have to be in such a debate. He thought bluster and volume and decibels were to there for, for, for substitute for quality, quantity to substitute for quality, and amplitude and noise to substitute for real argument. I mean, this is the sort of humbug which just makes us sick. And it's particularly made us sick about you. You fraud! You disgraceful, disgusting fraud!
0: The The answer is mate,
1: mate, because I want to do you slowly. I want to do you slowly. No, no. I know, there's got to be a bit of sport in this for all of us. There's got to be a bit of sport in this for all of us. And in the psychological battle stakes, we are stripped down and ready to go. Ready to go. And uh, I want to see those ashen face performances. More of them. I want to be encouraged. I want to see you squirm out of this load of rubbish over a period of months. There's going the to mim- be no easy execution for you. No execution for you, and if you think I'm going to put you out of your misery quickly, you
0: can think again. Welcome, potties, to Reflective Contemplations, the modern version of a political fireside chat, and today I'm going to break the golden rule of a blogger's vocation, or of a writer's vocation, so to speak. I'm going to answer a question a friend of mine posed following my last piece on the electoral college and voting rights in America. Uh, She dropped me a line and she asked me, why do you write? I must confess, initially I was taken aback uh, because I didn't quite know how to answer that question. And then I did what I've been doing quite frequently over the last few months, given the pandemic and given the fact that we all have to stay at home. I was taking a bath. I was lying in my bathtub, having a fancy glass of red wine sitting on my shelf Uh, listening to some jazz music in the background, letting my mind wander. And then the question came back to me. And I thought, you just gave me a good idea for a podcast. After all, I haven't been podcasting for quite a while. I have done a few pieces on my blog, but I haven't been doing anything in the podcasting realm. So I thought there's a topic I could um, possibly discuss for a bit. And so let's dive right into it. The question is, why do I write? Why? I do what I do. And I've been doing this blog now for two years. Now, let me first of all hark back to one of, if not the favorite author of mine. I'm talking, uh, of course, about uh, Eric Blair, alias George Orwell. And don't worry, I'm not fancying myself as, as the next Orwell of the literary world. But toward the end of his career, Orwell penned a, an essay uh, and he tried to answer that question himself why i write and he had of course the luxury to have been an accomplished writer at the time and uh, he was pretty much coming to the end of his career so um, and he said three things about a writer and i quote writers are vain selfish and lazy right and he was of course referring to himself and i guess if Blocks had been around at the time, I, he, he would have to say equally flattering things about us in the blogosphere. Now, let me first of all say, and I, I'm not saying this with uh, tongue-in-cheek, I, I have given it some serious thought, and I think on the question of uh, vain and selfish, I think he's absolutely right. What I'm trying to say is simply this, and I include myself in this entirely. Now, I think in all... ...in the arts in general, and even non-fictional writing, if you want to do it well, is an art form. You have to have, and I, I've i got to be open about it, you have to have a narcissistic streak in you. Um, now we associate, of, of course, turned uh, termed it vain and, and selfish... Now, obviously, you can't be selfish without being vain, and you can't be vain without being selfish to some degree. Now, I suppose modern psychology would just term it narcissistic. Um, now, I think that is a common trait among not just artists, especially in the creative art, whether we talk about, you know, movie makers or musicians. I also think it holds equally true for journalists and writers and bloggers and As I said, non-fictional writing is an art form, if you want to do it well. Now, in the media, obviously, thanks largely to uh, revering figures such as uh, Donald Trump and and perhaps Bolsonaro in Brazil, uh, narcissism is often associated with, um, I think, something that borders on psychopathy, to be perfectly honest. If you actually look at the psychological literature... Uh, the picture is much more nuanced. In fact, uh, a narcissistic streak, I think, is uh, part of, is part of all of us. I think it's, it's part of our DNA. It's part of what it is to be human. And it is not always a bad thing if it is channeled in the right way. What I'm trying to say is simply you have to have the drive to accomplish something. Or you have to hope that you accomplish something. And you have to be prepared to put yourself out there. I think probably most politicians are narcissistic. They have to be. I mean, imagine the media scrutiny they are subjected to today, um, the competitive nature of electoral politics. Now, I think you're going to have to have a pretty strong narcissistic tendency to even play the game. And I think that's not all by itself a bad thing. So I think what is important is to be self-aware, to be you know, to know that it is there, it is part of your uh inner makeup. And um I think it only becomes a problem if it you know, the need for self-gratification becomes obsessive and it's the only thing that matters in your life it outweighs everything else it outweighs empathy it, it's just a desire that you have to constantly feed then i think it becomes a problem now in the writing profession especially in non-fictional writing i think that means you're going to have to stick to the trade you're going to have because i mean they're pretty clear standards in non-fictional writing and i think perhaps it is a bit easier as well because after all, remember, writing is a very uh, lonely uh, profession. You have to like yourself in a way. Uh, writing is something that, you know, prior to the pandemic, I have enjoyed working in cafes, for example. And obviously that possibility is not open to me at the moment. So I had to get used to, you know, sitting at home all day long. Uh, throwing on the coffee maker and just getting some good coffee. I think coffee, by the way, is the best drug uh, for writing or any sort of creative work. Um, But I'm not talking about the coffee you get at Starbucks. I'm talking about a proper coffee grinder, black coffee, no sugar, no milk, and then obviously a lot of it. It helps the brain. It really does. Um, So I had to get used to that too. So writing is a very lonely profession. And I think, you know, the... Uh, drive for any uh, let's put it self-gratification success is manageable especially given that as my statistics show me my blog is perhaps read at the moment by 30 to 50 people which is not going to change the world Uh, my podcast is being listened to by perhaps 20 people Uh, that 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 is also not changing the world but I enjoy what I'm doing you know it's, it's just part of especially because I do it on the side. Do I hope that maybe one day I would be able to write for an accomplished publication? Yes, it's a dream of mine, absolutely, and I think I can do it. Um, I think I, I've got the ability to do it. Um, but if it just remains a hobby of mine, that's perfectly fine, too. So I'm just open to everything that, that life throws at me, and I, I will see where it all takes me. You know, For me, it's a journey, too. Um, so, we will see where that all goes. Now, on the point of lazy, I must say Orville was, as always, pretty co- much contradicting himself. Um, now, he said uh, writers are lazy, but then he said writing a book is, exhaust- is, is ex- exhaustive. And I, well, I'm not even talking about writing a book, but even blog posts, if, especially if you write lengthy blog, blog posts. Yeah, it's hard work, absolutely and, uh, you know, doing the research, getting it all together into a narrative that, and you always have an imagined reader. For me, it's always been like, I mean, I've been doing that for two years. And um, for me, it has always been, I always put it to people, for me, a writing project is like a, it's it's like someone taking up residence in my frontal lobe. Uh, So it's always there. And the best, or the, the most of my writing is done far away from the computer um it happens in your head it happens in your head all the time um so you know it's not i'm not proficient enough to sit in front of a computer and suddenly uh, start to write i mean you know doing the research is one thing but then fitting it all together and thinking what various kinds of you know putting it always thinking about an imagined reader uh, that happens all in your head. That does not happen in front of your uh, computer or iPad or whatever you write on. Now, I must say, i mean, give you an example. The last piece on the Electoral College and voting rights. Now, that was a piece where I was um, absolutely... I had a pretty good lead Uh, I had done all the research remember the lead sets the tone for the article Um, but I hadn't thought about the end so I didn't quite know how am I going to end this all properly I mean I just wasn't satisfied I had basically said everything there was to say and suddenly I was sitting there and thinking to myself well I probably could leave it at that and no one would notice but for me personally especially given the lead. It just didn't sound right. Unfortunately, nothing happened in my head. So for one or two days, I just couldn't come up with anything meaningful to conclude the article. And it's amazing what your subconscious subconscious suddenly does um, if you don't necessarily focus on a writing project. Um, So I was sitting there, you know, in my kitchen, having my headphones on my ears, listening to some music, and music has been immensely helpful in various writing uh, projects I've undertaken. And um, suddenly, uh, it all came to me, you know, I remember what I read about one guy in the Federalist Papers, and then I suddenly knew, well, that's what you can use. And I had the, for me, an ending I could genuinely live with. But it didn't happen on purpose, it just, you know, it just happened deep somewhere in my mind. And I'm of course just talking about blog posts, I'm not talking about various projects uh, that, that take much more energy and much more commitment and much more time. So I think writing is extraordinarily exhausting. Now, I don't necessarily like to write as such, I just like the final product. Um, I just like the idea that you start off with a blank page and then suddenly after hard work, after focusing all your brain power on it, you have a final product and that's there for everybody to see. That that for me is gratifying, absolutely. And where it takes me, I don't know. Um. So when I started my blog, especially given that um, I was very much dissatisfied with Facebook. I had been a Facebook nerd and junkie for various years and uh, Facebook just didn't cut it for me anymore because uh, you know, there were all the various scandals, Cambridge Analytica, all that sort of stuff. And then obviously you had also, I mean, I would probably 150 friends or something like that. And I noticed that I communicated at best with two or three of them, and also communication was just very superficial on Facebook. So I, I got dissatisfied. Twitter never appealed to me. I don't know what people find so intriguing about Twitter. I think it just brings out the worst in 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 mankind. So I I don't I never warmed to Twitter really. And I thought I'm gonna do this blog, and I, you know, found WordPress and various things and just didn't quite know what to do with it, especially because I didn't really know at the time what to write about. So in the beginning, I thought I could probably leave it like a, you know, Facebook version of myself, like, you know, sharing stuff and things like that. But of course, over the months, I noticed that all the things you can do. And then there were, um, you know, there were two books that really inspired me. This is one by Robert Caro, uh, he's a famed author in the United States. He wrote a great autobiography, uh, a great biography on uh, Robert Moses in New York, um, The Power Broker. He wrote a multi-volume biography of Lyndon B. Johnson. But he wrote a book called Working. And in that, he talks a lot about the art of non-fictional writing and how he works. Now, I'm not going to be able to be a Robert Caro anytime soon because uh uh, there are limits to what you can do with a blog. But it helped me. Um, and there was another uh, uh, book at the time I read, uh, On Writing Well, which was uh, published by another accomplished writer. I'm going have to have to uh, look it up. I, the name has just escaped me at the moment because it's quite a while ago that I read that book. And he gave also some really valuable instructions about the trade. Now, it's always a guide. A lot about writing, even non-fictional writing, is, of course, instinct. But it was immensely helpful. And so I decided to do my first more lengthy pieces on my blog. And I realized, well, even given the limitations of what you can do with research and stuff, uh, there's a lot you can do. And so, you know, I did this... um, piece on the Hawke and Keating years in Australia which took me quite a bit and you know as you know Paul Keating as you have heard on my jingles to, for the introduction and the um, uh, the end uh, he's a he's a hero of mine uh, Labour Prime Minister in Australia from 1991 to 1996 and um, so I wanted to do something about the uh, Hawke and Keating years But I always knew that I, of course, have a great affection for Keating and I knew I had to hold this in check somehow because otherwise it's just not very credible. So you can admire somebody, um, but in the writing process, of course, I had to be very balanced in how I approached the topic. Um, And then I did a pretty lengthy piece on... Uh, Australia and climate change and what surprised me about that when I started it I didn't know that much about climate change policies in Australia so in my experience sometimes I'm in, in better form if I take a subject about which I know little uh, because I, I suppose it keeps me on my toes and it makes me really delve into into the research. Um, now how I genuinely got to write or aspire to be uh a blogger one day a serious blogger or even a serious writer uh for publications it's a long story i want to i want to sort of relate it really in in a short version i mean my love affair to books um and some of you obviously may know that i'm blind so my journey was a pretty lengthy and complicated one um My love affair with books goes back to, I know, the end of the 1980s, probably. I mean, we had a at school, at boarding school for blind people, we had a library with Braille books. Um, Now, Braille books, for those of you who don't know, Braille books are immensely big. They are complicated to print. And take, for example, the German dictionary, the Dune, or any other dictionary... What is for you as a sighted person, a book in in Braille, it takes 26 or 27 volumes. So basically you're going to have to fill up a shelf to even put one version of a dictionary into a room. So obviously Braille books don't get you very far. Let's be be frank about it. Uh, When digital technology came in over the next few decades, things improved, but only a little. I remember going to university in London, and obviously we were very well equipped there. We had a computer in the library, we had a scanner in the library, we had campus support workers. But even so, uh, much of my college work was basic, or basically consisted of, you know, scanning books around the clock. I'm probably overstating the case a bit, but there was a lot of scanning, and in that you will never be able to be competitive academically. I mean you have to acknowledge that that's that's the reality of the game that's that's something you cannot do you cannot uh aspire to be as well read as other people if you have to scan books that was not an option either in the long term it just doesn't work um what really was the game change of the century if i may say so and i mean i've i've lot of issues with Apple and I have a lot of issues with the tech sector in general but just for you to understand the magnitude of the change um, a friend of mine it was 2011 so I'm gonna have to delve into that a bit more Um, it was uh, the 4th of March 2011 was a Friday two months before I was done with my degree in Heidelberg and went to Sheffield to do my master's degree in England and a friend of mine, who is blind as well, came over and said, no, let's just pop over to the mobile phone shop. I need a new Nokia phone. And uh, so we went. I wasn't very keen. I wasn't keen on even getting a new mobile. I had, I think, a Nokia phone as well at the time, whatever. And this guy behind the counter introduced us to the Apple iPhone, which I had heard about, but never paid much attention. And... Luckily for us, he was knowledgeable enough to introduce us to the voiceover technology. I was so in awe that next day I didn't care about the money, I didn't care about anything, I just went there and got it. And right away, uh, probably took me two days or three days of playing around with that thing, I noticed that is revolutionary for me. Because now, for the first time, the printed word became almost ex- as accessible to me as for sighted people, in the sense that suddenly on the Apple Bookstore you could buy books and you can read them out of the box. So you buy a book on Apple Books, uh, you can read it either straight away with VoiceOver. You can hook up your Braille display, uh, display to the iPhone, and you can read. It. And of course, I knew. And this was exactly what I had been longing for such a long time in my life. And I knew that that would be a major game changer because suddenly books became almost as accessible to me as for sighted people. There's one downside to it. It's not a library. So when I do research for a piece, I'm going to have to buy the books. Uh, There's no other way. If I don't buy the books, uh, I can't read them. You can get an extract, but obviously if you do research on a topic and you have to read up on a topic, that's no option. So hopefully one day, perhaps Apple and the publishing industry come to some sort of agreement that like on Apple TV or on on streaming services for movies or music, you can just have a fee and then you can get books, you know, and... uh, you can return them. They're going to be deleted after two weeks or four weeks or whatever. And then, you know, you can basically rent out the books. Now, there are sites doing that, but it's not accessible with a voiceover. Uh, so that's 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 the game changer here. Because every book you get, it is accessible right away. No scanning, no tedious work of any kind. You can just read it and start right away and use it. All right. And in that regard, uh, do I read all the books I'm linking to in my articles? No. Uh <laughs> there's a question somebody asked me um the other day, and I was like, no. Um, I think no researcher does. Um, do I read the books I'm quoting from? Yes. Absolutely. Um with perhaps one exception in my article on um Uh, climate change in Australia I wrote about the Labour Party's climate policies under Kevin Rudd and I got a very well researched lengthy biography of Kevin Rudd, I bought it too on the Apple store but there of course I focused only on one chapter that is the environmental uh, policies he pursued when when in government so you're going to have to be a bit picky with uh, your research but no of course not but when you quote something you at least should have read Pretty much everything there is to know um, about about the subject, um, but it doesn't make a whole lot of sense for a blog article to read each and every single book. And remember, my objective is always that the reader in the end has something to take away or to, you know, dive deeper into the matter by himself or herself. I mean, that's my objective, and that's I can that, that's something I can accomplish with the blog. But I think that's as far as it goes. Maybe things will be different if I ever get the chance to write for a serious publication. That that may well be. But for the time being, I'm going to have to make do with what, what is possible. Um, So that's basically my story. But I do want to take this opportunity as I'm doing this podcast. I'm doing podcasting pretty irregularly because I don't like monologues. And um, I think it's hard enough for you to put up with them. But there's one thing I do want to talk about. Um as I have already mentioned Orville, uh, I must come back to a topic that, especially given that we have an election year in Germany, uh, I think is a very interesting one. And Orwell, of course, wrote a much acclaimed essay. I suppose it's a blueprint to 1984. It's a non-fictional blueprint to 1984. Um, he wrote an essay on the English language and the way it is being used uh, as a mechanism for encoding privilege Uh, even tyranny but especially encoding privilege and of course political language is a tool for the powerful, the way it shapes our discourse is a reflection of power dynamics in society now My interest in political language actually goes back a long time. Um, I was 16. uh, It was in 1994. And I did a project for history class. And a teacher gave me a cassette. Uh, We don't need cassettes anymore. But at the time, we had this fancy little things called cassettes, which you put on an antiquated tape recorder. But anyway... And I came across this guy who, for me, is the polar opposite of language being used uh, for privilege. Here, he uses language, I think, to accomplish something really worthwhile. Um, So I want to take you on a little excursion before I finish. And um, this guy, of course, I'm talking about the the first leader of Germany's Social Democratic Party after the Second World War. Uh, a man I revere, a man I have an awful lot of respect for, I mean, a, a, a highly intelligent moral man. I'm talking, of course, uh, dear listener, about Kurt Schumacher. Now, just to give you a quick rundown, Schumacher was born in 1895. He was born into a very liberal family. Uh, he lost one of his arms in World War One. He became a Social Democrat. He was a member of the Reichstag. And he railed against uh the uh Nazis the National Socialist Party, even before they took power and during the uh uh during the Nazi reign, he was interned in various concentration camps um he was abused he was tortured really badly his health suffered enormously, and I think that was probably the reason why he passed away so early at the age of fifty seven in um 1952. But he never broke. He never broke. And after the Second World War, he became a much admired uh, leader of the Social Democrats. And he gave a fantastic speech in 1947. He was one of those guys, he was a member of a generation who were not professional politicians in the sense that they did not go to university and spend all their life climbing the greasy poles as our politicians do nowadays. He was not one of these pathetic, loyally types that make up the political class these days. And you can tell, he was the sort of guy who would stand on a market square and he would interact with the crowd. And when I play you this piece now, uh, for the German speakers among you, I want to just get a feel, not just for the times, but for the man himself and how he interacts with the crowd, how he shapes the agenda. By colorful creative uh use of language um it was not like today where a political language is largely uniform you know and and have a have a listen at uh how passionate this guy interacts with the crowd, the vibe he creates, and then think about our political class today and after we have listened to that, i'm gonna have a few comments about the current election com- campaign and the personnel on offer um, but I really want you to do it because it rocked me off my chair when I was 16 and it still does and thanks to YouTube we don't need cassette recorders anymore, we can just look it up and so I'm going to take you back to 1947 to West Berlin and let's have a listen to one of the greatest men in German politics
2: yeah, Partei der guten Zusammenarbeit, aber wir sind keine Partei der Unterwerfung. Und gegenüber den Versuchen, jetzt auf einmal proletarisch auffrisiert, einen antiquierten Nationalismus hervorzuziehen, möchte ich den Kommunisten das eine sagen. Das Heroenzeitalter, Der Kommunisten ist vorüber. Sie sind vom. Her- Sie sind vom Heroismus zum Bürokratismus herübergewechselt. Und der Bürokratismus, das ist kein faszinierendes Vorbild dass wir die deutschen Arbeiter begeistern wollen. Oh nein, Distanz, meine Herren, Distanz. Schon darum, weil das Schicksal des deutschen Volkes sehr weitgehend abhängig ist von der Entwicklung der Arbeiterbewegung. Wir respektieren das russische Volk, aber wir haben keine Veranlassung, die sozialökonomische und politische Verfassung, in der sich heute das russische Volk befindet auf unseren Boden zu übertragen. Der Kommunismus als Prinzip der Neuordnung der Klassenbeziehung existiert ja gar nicht mehr. Der Kommunismus ist ja heute das Prinzip des Existenz und ist eines Nationalstaats. Und darum werden die Kommunisten ihrer Aktion ja auch nicht einen internationalen oder deutschen Widerhall für ihre klassenkämpferischen Ideen finden, sondern sie werden stets nur die Abwehr gegen ein fremdes nationalpolitisches Prinzip bei uns finden. Und heute ist die Frage Kommunist oder Sozialdemokrat die Frage Röte oder Deutscher und wir sind für ja. ja. Aus unserer ganzen geistesgeschichtlichen Haltung heraus, gibt es für uns kein Sozialismus ohne Freiheit. Aber, Aber für uns, ist ebenso die Vorstellungsweise des Free Enterprise, des alleinselig machen Unternehmertums und seiner Initiative, für Europa kein gangbarer Weg. Sehen Sie, was unter den großen ökonomischen und äh, reichen äh, Voraussetzungen der Vereinigten Staaten möglich ist, was dort gegeben ist als Resultat der großen Flächen und der riesigen Bodenschätze und der großen Erden, das ist bei dem zusammengeschlagenen Europa eben doch ganz anders. Es ist ökonomisch anders, es ist sozial anders, aber es ist auch historisch anders. Die Geschichte des deutschen Kapitalismus ist eben eine andere als die Geschichte des amerikanischen Kapitalismus. Und ich meine, so sehr wir uns dagegen wehren, den totalitären Staatskapitalismus auf uns übertragen zu lassen, so sehr wehren wir uns auch gegen die Annahme des Free Enterprises.
0: Now, dear listener, doesn't that speech get under your skin? Well, it certainly still does go under my skin. And um, I extend this courtesy also to others on the political right. I mean, I've been studying parliamentary debates and I've been almost seeing all the parliamentary debates, uh, major parliamentary debates that took place in the 1970s and early 1980s and what you will find that of course you have the social democrats like Herbert Wehner, Willy Brandt, Helmut Schmidt etc etc but there are also people on the right, for me uh, I would would have profoundly disagreed with them uh, but I would have enjoyed doing political battle with them Uh, to engage in rhetorical combat across the dispatch box because well, for me they were true Democrats they were as passionate about their political beliefs as I am and I'm of course talking about Rainer Bartzel, for example and of course one of my icons on the right, Franz Josef Strauss I mean he was a a conviction politician he was a polarizing figure highly intelligent man um, but he stood for something and that is a guy I really revere. I think he, he, he would have been the sort of guy that I would have loved to do battle with in, in parliament. You know, he's a great figure in German politics and um, the guy I am gonna talk about later on is certainly not Franz Jose Strauss. So what has gone wrong with political language as I see it? Well, I think it has become uniform. It is largely devoid of any content. Now, some may say you're trying to compare apples with oranges, you are trying to imply something that was, uh, you had a very different situation at the time, history was very different, and political language today is simply a result, an outgrowth of our prevailing zeitgeist. Now, I disagree with that completely. I disagree with that completely. I think it's a lazy attitude to have, especially among politicians, journalists, commentators and linguists. Because I don't think there's any need for surrendering either to the zeitgeist nor to anything else, especially given all the problems we have. They invite a different kind of political language. The left has so many things on its plate and you hardly hear anything about it. I mean, there's, for example, of course, the entire problem of a rising plutocracy the world over, uh, hollowing out democratic principles all over the world. You have the tech giants, which I see in their current form as a genuine uh, threat to democratic principles the world over. Uh, you have, of course, climate change, uh, but you also have a re-emergence of nationalism. These are all issues the left has to deal with, and in order to do so, you have to find a different language to conceptualize what is happening in the world. I have no blueprint for success, so I'm not gifted with clairvoyance, I don't have all the answers. But even in intellectual circles on the left, especially in the uh, social democratic movement, there's not even a proper debate about these issues. There's not even a proper debate about these issues. Now, look at the political class that is on offer in this election year. Now you have these uh, uh, Hanseatic, uh, tired, party apparatchik Olaf Scholz that has been nominated uh, by the Social Democrats. Uh, A a guy who is as effective in arousing the passions of working men and women as a volume, making a mockery of the movement's history. I mean, it's it's just incredible. And he will be very lucky if his party uh, crosses the uh, threshold of 20%. I don't think they will, but we'll see. Now, on the other side of politics, of course, you have, well, how can I put it politely, you have the... (laughs) You have the Bavarian uh, knight in shining armor, Marcus the Eternal, Markus the Great, the guy who is now considering trading the Hofbräuhaus in Munich for the chancellery in Berlin. What an achievement! Now, he is the perfect example uh, that proves beyond any doubt that uh, body height and intellect don't correlate. Uh, He fancies himself being the next Franz Josef Strauss, but Franz Josef Strauss would never, he would never have built his political career on the suffering of others. What Söder has been doing over the last year is ruthlessly, ruthlessly exploiting the pandemic for his own political gains. That's all he has been doing. And for me, he embodies the... Undying longing that seems to be part of the German political DNA that never quite dies out Um, He embodies the longing that uh, of some Germans even today for a strongman Uh, That's that's what he is and uh, I think he would be an absolute absolute disaster now He said to the Union caucus uh, last week uh, We will shape the zeitgeist. Oh, no Söder is not Strauss. He's not going to shade the zeitgeist. He's going to chase the zeitgeist. He's going to be, he's going to be a chancellor that boggles under pressure. He goes in the direction the wind blows. Um, He will be a chancellor that says this today, that tomorrow, depending on what his pollsters whisper into his ear. And I think that that is a disastrous, uh, disastrous premise uh, on which to, to build your political agenda. Then, of course, we have a guy I do have some sympathy for. Uh, that's of course, is Armin the Weak. Uh, he is being sort of falling foul to this uh, uh, high-minded Bavarian buffoon. And then, of course, we have, well, how can I put it best uh, without being too frank? But anyway, then, of course, Jens the Feeble. I mean, you know, he's the sort of guy that wore his stupid grin into every single television studio in the country when the pandemic kicked in, already picturing himself to be in the uh, chancellor's office anytime soon, Now he doesn't grin anymore. And when things started going awry, he he became very sensitive and he wondered why people don't like him. You know, I mean, he's this upper-class boy. It's so typical for upper-class people that, uh, you know, he's sensitive, he wants to be liked. For him, politics is all about him and about self-gratification. And that's why I said in the beginning, that is a narcissistic trait common among a lot of politicians. And he is certainly one of them. I tell you what, if I were done with him in politics, the entire country would know him as the multi-million euro man. And we would all wish him well in his uh, uh, premature retirement, uh, in his shiny place of residence. Now, one piece of advice I have for Jens Zofiebel, though, if he, uh, he, he's well, if he looks for people who like him, he's well advised to take out a leaf of uh, Söder's playbook, because the only friends you have in public life on politics are dogs, and Söder has plenty of them. So I think that that is something uh, Mr. Uh, uh, Jens Spahn should consider. Uh, that will certainly help matters. So all the people we have on offer at the moment... Um, I mean, it's it's just shameful. Um, You know, when when I listen to great parliamentarians that have shaped the Bonner Republic, and I hear people say, well, that's all a different time, we don't need people like that anymore, it's much more civilized and stuff. Well, who built German democracy from scratch? I mean... Uh, Scholz, Söder, Laschet, Spahn, these pathetic loyally types, they could have done it, they could have done it, they in their tawdry opportunistic ways, to hell with them, to hell with all of them. Now I'm not saying that lightly, but I think it is a sign of our time that at the moment we have a, a very homogeneous group of people that speak the same language, they don't go at each other, they hide behind this fanciful notion of tolerance. Uh, Tolerance is good and nice, but in a democracy you need more than tolerance. You need argument. You need debate. And I think you need tough debates, controversial debates. And uh, it, it is no surprise that the gulf between the governing and the governed, is widening. And I think largely to blame is a homogeneous group of people that make up the political elites, the media elites, and also a political language that is uninviting, uncreative, and no pride, no will to challenge, you know, this is a sort of political class that crawls in front of an overbearing, moralizing press corps. And um, I think that does not bode well for democracy in the long term. Now, let me, of course, say something about the uh, another favorite party of mine, the oko Um They're going to put up their dream team and they will decide on Monday who's going to uh, move or, or hopes to move into the uh chancellor's office i don't think they will succeed but this is a sort of party they started off to change the world and now they think that if you ban fireworks on new year's eve you're gonna save the planet i mean this is and let's make no mistake about it the green party has nothing in it for workers nothing nothing at all the green party has always been and will always be a party of the well educated intellectual elites as a party of, of uh, academics of lawyers of professors and they will work very well with conservatives because for workers for the working poor there will be nothing in that government nothing at all and that's why i call them ecoabracics because their their first for power is everything at the moment And that is a party that once was uh, the heart of the German peace movement. That's how sometimes uniformity in politics corrupts. And corrupts, I dare say, absolutely. Well, I'm going to leave you with that. These are my own political thoughts. If you ask me whom I'm going to vote for in this election year, I'm not going to vote for any of the major parties i've always been voting either social democrat or left i'm not gonna vote for any major party i'm not gonna vote for the left either um at best perhaps i vote for the pirate party or anything like that so for me the the personnel and the uh, program and party manifestos that have been put forward are just dismal absolutely dismal and by the way i can only hope Whoever ends up in the chancellor's office, we're not gonna have this. Uh, we're not gonna have another chancellor uh, for 10, 15 years. I mean, one of the guys I do admire in German politics, uh, besides Schumacher and 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 Strauss on the right, is of course Helmut Schmidt. Helmut Schmidt once said that um, eight years almost is too long. Now, why didn't go voluntarily in 1982 is another question. I admit that, but uh, I think he's absolutely right. And uh, I think we have now had three chancellors in Germany that were in office far too long. Adenauer, of course, not, uh, 49 to 63. Uh, Kohl, 82 to 98. And Frau Merkel, 2005, 2021. And I'm not even commenting on their policies. I'm just saying that in any democratic setting... Even in in a parliamentary system, I mean, you know, we are not in a presidential system, but even in a parliamentary system, it is just far too long. Make of it what you will, dear listener. One final thought. Um, There will be other pieces, hopefully, on my blog. I have been working through uh, quite a few areas. I don't have anything in the pipelines at the moment, so if you have any ideas what to write about or what topic to uh, focus on more seriously and uh, with with some hopefully intellectual vigor, then you're always invited to let me know. I'm always open to ideas and suggestions. But I hope of course I'm going to turn this blog into any, um, into something that is worthwhile. And I'm going to leave you with that and wish you all well. Have a nice weekend before the next political earthquake uh, rocks the country. Maybe we have two next week. First, we're going to have the uh, Conservatives finally settling scores. And then we have the Green Party, uh, you know, nominating one of their dream team, you know, to to, to be their candidate for chancellor. And um, I'm curious how that all goes. Righty, folks. I'll leave you with that. All the best. Bye-bye. And we'll speak soon. This podcast was brought to you by YorkTrader.com. And what is my political hero saying now?
1: Don't waste your time on me, son. Don't waste your time on me. I've been around. I know you. I know you. I know where the skeletons are in your closet.